Thank you for coming to uh, Cato's Healthcare University. My name is Brandon Arnold. I'm the Director of Government Affairs at the Cato Institute. Um, if you're not familiar with, with the way we've set up Healthcare University, some of you may have attended uh, in previous years Social Security University. Uh, the, the purpose of this is to provide you over the course of several days uh, a good understanding of the forces affecting healthcare, uh, why healthcare is so expensive. Uh, answering some of these questions, and then also talking about some of the policy options that are before you uh, as staffers working for members of Congress, about some of the policy options that are happening in the states, and uh, looking forward about some of the solutions to the, the crisis facing health care currently. Uh, we hope that you will be able to attend all four days. The, the healthcare university is going to extend from now until Friday. Every day we're going to meet in this room at the same time. Uh, future lectures are going to talk about how not to reform health care, how to liberalize or free the health care sector, and how to reform government health care programs, Medicare and Medicaid, obviously. So we'll hope you, we'll, you'll join us for all four of those days because we're going to keep building on the knowledge that you've acquired in, uh, in this lecture and beyond. Uh, if you haven't done so already, when you came in, there, was there were two handouts. One had a graph on the front and the other was an outline form. Hopefully, you all picked that up already. If you didn't, if you can raise your hand, uh, we will be happy to come by and give you one. Ryan will be bringing those around. If you wouldn't mind just holding your hand, for, holding your hand up for just a minute or two. Uh, in addition, on the front table, hopefully everybody picked up a copy of our two latest health care books. Those are Crisis of Abundance and Healthy Competition. These are provided free of charge to all participants in Healthcare University. We have several more copies outside on the table, so if you didn't pick them up, uh, please feel free to do so when you leave this afternoon. Uh, also available at the table is a sign-up list. You guys can register for Cato's uh, daily email that, that we send out, alerting you to events that we're having, to publications that we're producing, and other events that may be of interest to you. You can sign up for that. The list is out front on the registration table. With that, I'm going to go ahead and introduce our speaker for the day. Uh, our speaker is, is Dr. Peter Van Doren, who's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and also the editor of Regulation, which is our quarterly publication some of you may have seen. Uh, he's taught previously at Princeton University, Yale University, and most importantly, in, in my biased opinion, at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, which happens to be my alma mater. Um, He's also appeared on numerous news programs, uh, CNN, CNBC, Fox News. Uh, Peter received his bachelor's degree from MIT and his master's degree and doctorate from Yale University. With that, I'll go ahead and turn it over to Peter Van Dorn. The important thing that I see missing from almost everyone's discussion of healthcare insurance markets is that all markets involve gains to trade including insurance markets. Someone is trading with someone else because both benefit. So I need to go through these preliminary discussions to explain to you what it means for people to achieve gains to trade in insurance markets and how that pertains to healthcare. The first concept we need to understand is are called expected value statements. Expected value statements are statements of a probability of an event occurring times the cost of that event. So you see I've created two events here. One is, involves $10,000 of damages and it has a 0 0.1 
10% probability of occurring per year. The second statement is 100% probability, 1.0, times the cost of $1,000. If you multiply probability times cost, you create what's called the expected value of an event. And notice the expected value of these two events are the same. They are identical. They have expected value of $1,000 each. Now, for the clever ones, you've already figured out that this is a car accident or a healthcare incident or something bad that happens very rarely, 10% of the time, but it's expensive. This is the annual premium on an insurance policy. It occurs every year. It's predictable. It's 100% of the time. But notice the expected values of these two things are the same. Okay? If, now I need to define three states of affairs. These are the way people think about these two alternatives. If people are risk neutral, the person is indifferent between these two events. They don't care which one happens. For people who are risk averse, they prefer this event to this event. For people who are risk-seeking, they prefer the high-cost, low-probability event over the more certain lower-cost event. Okay? So NASCAR drivers, Indy 500 drivers, they're risk-seeking. They go for very high expected value events that have low probability and some of them die. Why do they do that? Because they have different preferences than you and you or I. They're not irrational. They're not stupid. They're not smart. They're nothing. They're just a different risk profile than you or I. If people were risk neutral, there would be no insurance markets. Okay? Because these two things are the same. Insurance markets exist if and only if people are risk-averse and companies are risk-neutral. Okay, so insurance markets involve gains to trade between risk-averse people and risk-neutral companies. Never, ever, ever forget that. No one on the Hill seems to understand this. They think companies have money and it grows on trees and they pay for things. They don't. Okay? Insurance markets are just trades between risk-averse people and risk-neutral companies. Now, why are companies risk-neutral? Guess what? We have no eraser. Oh, is that what these are? Oh. Left over from Memorial Day weekend. <clears throat> My favorite drawing, I use it in every class, every day, every minute, is a frequency distribution. Assume, even though it's not true, assume for purposes of this discussion that healthcare costs are normally distributed. A normal distribution has a mean and a mode and a median that are the same. That's not true for the real healthcare cost distribution, but assume for 
purposes of this discussion that it is. Notice that the mean, by definition, is the sum of money times, if everyone in the population of healthcare costs distribution pays the average, then the company is indifferent between charging everyone the annual average healthcare cost as a premium and allowing all the individuals to pay their expected value of their particular events. So the key to a company being risk neutral is that everyone in the population of damages, and these, are, these dots I'm drawing are individuals, that take, take this setup of people that we've got here today as a population of people. There are about 70 of you. If I asked each of you your annual health care costs, I would get some distribution that probably wouldn't be normal, but it might look something like that. Notice by definition, if I'm a company and I charge each of you the average that I find in the room of health care costs, by definition, that insurance premium will allow the company to just break even. As long as the company has access to population-level data about the incidence of health care costs and can charge premiums that reflect those averages and people randomly sign up for insurance from the underlying population, then algebraically it has to be true that the company will just break even, and that is what makes it risk-neutral. It's just, it's just algebra, okay? Once you understand this frequency distribution, I can go on to describe the two market failures that economists worry about a lot in healthcare. The first is called moral hazard. And it's easier to describe visually than it is mathematically, so I'll do it with this diagram. If I gather data from this room on your annual health care costs, then I set up a company and then charge you the average that I find in this room, what might go wrong next year once you're all insured? Answer, because you're insured, you might all change your behavior. That is, if the entire frequency distribution of data shifts to the right, notice the mean of the new red distribution, which is subsequent to being insured, if the mean of that new distribution is to the right of the mean of the old distribution, notice that suddenly I go broke, the risk-neutral company. Okay, I'm honest, you're honest, we're all truthful, but the act of insuring changes everyone's behavior so that they consume more services because they're insured. Or, to use the hockey helmet analogy, because you're insured, you take less care and therefore incur more costs because you're not as safe as you were when you were uninsured. This phenomena, a shift of the entire data distribution to the right, to the increased cost side, because of being insured, is called moral hazard. Companies try to undermine that tendency of people by charging you co-payments and deductibles cost-sharing so that it's not just the company's money, but some of it's your money. 
companies vary as to how they, how much they charge, what kinds of copayments, et cetera, et cetera. But the basic insight is that companies need to get you to think that some of what you're consuming is not free, but it's your money. Okay. <clears throat> Market failure number two. Again, go back to that initial distribution. Now, remember I said before that I get your costs, I get the data, I find the average, I then charge that as a premium. But some of you in this audience are up are up in the age distribution to some extent, and others of you are not, I can tell right away. So what if the average that I determine from this room turns out to be, oh, $6,000 per capita among the people in this room? If you're 22 and just out of college and you're working in a free internship, you have no money. And you might decide that the 6,000, yes, it's the average, and yes, it's math, and yes, I'm risk averse, but I don't have it. I want pizza or something like that. If, if the people in the lower tail, the lower, the left-hand side of the cost distribution know that their predictable costs are less than the average, even if they're risk averse, they will find the average to be a bad bargain. They will not sign up voluntarily. And thus, once again, the mean of the distribution of the people that actually sign up will be different from the mean of the distribution of the people I gather data on. That is called adverse selection. It won a Nobel Prize for three folks that are very famous, uh, Mike Spence, Joe Stiglitz, and George Akerlof. It's also called the market for lemons. George Akerlof wrote a famous article on what's the market for used cars look like. And he said, there's asymmetric information between the person selling and the person buying. The very fact that someone's selling a car probably tells the buyer that the car is a lemon. Because if it really were a good car, you wouldn't sell it at all. Because people hang on to cars as long as they're not lemons. So the worst form of adverse selection he could imagine was the, the market for 10-year-old Jettas. I actually have a 10-year-old Jetta. The fact that I've hung on to it suggests to you I'm stupid or it's not a bad car. Might be both. So anyway, healthcare economists worry a lot about adverse selection and moral hazard. In the, um, on page two, I think we're now, on the top of page two, I give you two examples, two severe examples of, of adverse selection and moral hazard. The first is adverse selection. Alan Kruger, who's a, an economist at Princeton, used to write the econ column in the New York Times for a while. He has this fascinating example of privately provided elderly prescription drug coverage before the Medicare plan. If you read it carefully, you will realize that the premium that they charged is exactly what everyone gets out. Guess what? 
That's not insurance. Notice there was no risk sharing because the only people that signed up were in the right-hand side of the mean, which mean the mean would shift. And if you remember your discussion of, I think, Consumer Reports and the networks and whatever did a tremendous disservice in describing the Medicare drug insurance plan because they told everyone to go out, figure out your predictable monthly prescription needs. If that number was greater than the annual premium, then go into the Medicare prescription drug system. If not, it's not a good deal, stay out. Do you understand that that's exactly wrong, right? That if the only people who sign up for something have greater than average spending, it's like Lake Wobegon, right? All children are above average. Well, you can't have that. You can't have an insurance scheme that's like that. Notice there's now pressure, political pressure, to waive the initial sign-up penalty. We're beyond the initial sign-up period for Medicare. And it's, what's the number, 7% or something? once the next sign-up period occurs. Do you understand? I mean, Congress is stupid, more or less, most of the time. But on this, they sort of had it right. You've got to have a random sample of elderly sign up initially so that it forms a pool of people to avoid the adverse selection problem. To create the tendency of everyone to wait till they're all above average, you had to create penalties for the initial sign-up, which is why they did what they did. But notice, there's pressure now to renege on that and Economists call that time inconsistent behavior, and we're about to see a big example of it, I think, which is Congress will waive the penalty. The, uh, the HMO example gives a real world private sector example of adverse selection gaming the system. When I was a professor at Princeton, I know I did. Um, I had some athletic injuries from my uninsured graduate school days. And uh, my shoulder dislocated 10 times while playing hockey. And didn't have insurance as a late graduate student, so I didn't get it repaired. And then I became an assistant professor at Princeton. And I got in the high option plan, which paid 100% of everything, and had my shoulder repaired. Then I dropped back to the low option coverage after I knew that I didn't need the surgery. Well, after the fourth year I was at Princeton, Princeton dropped the high option plan because everyone had figured out how to game the system and create adverse selection. So this, some people, I, at least in Washington, argue adverse selection isn't a real problem and we don't see it and all that. Well, we do. Um, and so we have to be very careful about designing these kinds of systems uh, to avoid it. Part B. Big, 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 big bugaboo of mine, which is most ordinary people think of insurance as a redistributive mechanism. And particularly those on the left just get this wrong quite a bit, in that they think that we have to coerce known high-risk people to, or known low-risk people to somehow join up to some plan, and that subsidizes the known high-risk people. Well, in voluntary insurance markets, that does not happen, although I'm going to modify that statement a bit with recent research that I think is quite interesting. The anecdote I use in my class is to ask my students if would they voluntarily uh, sign up for the following contract. They love their grandparents, but would they agree to take their health care costs per year, add their grandparents' health care costs per year, and divide by two, and each of them pay that premium? And they kind of squirm in their seats, and they don't know what to do. And then they say, no, 
I don't think I want to do that. And then I say, guess what? That's how insurance markets work. And insurance markets, therefore, cannot redistribute ex ante in that obvious fashion, fashion, even though everyone wants to wish that they could do it somehow. And um, why people persist in this belief, I do not know, but they do. Now, for the clever in the audience, you'll say, how about employer-provided health, insu health insurance? And I'm now at the bottom of two going on to three. The, it would seem that employer-provided health insurance somehow violates the rule that I've just described. That is, there's no obvious connection between premiums paid and condition within the firm. But people forget there's something called total compensation, which is the firm is indifferent between benefits and cash. As benefits become more costly, cash goes down. There's been lots of nice econometric studies that show that older employees are paid less than their marginal product in cash and more in benefits. Younger employees are the opposite. And thus, in effect, older employees think they're getting subsidized by younger employees in the firm, but older employees are actually a lot more productive than their cash would suggest. The difference is, in fact, being soaked up by their benefits. On the individual, and I give some econometric evidence there um, under the group. Down in 2B, I talk about uh, in the middle of page 3. Mark Pauly's book, AEI book, 1999, is pretty much the definitive evidence on this front, although the data he used are old. A more recent paper is an MBER paper from uh, April of last year that talks about the healthcare costs of the obese within employer-provided coverage. It looks like they get lower wages relative to their marginal product to offset their increased healthcare costs. Now back to the individual. The most people's perception of the individual market is that it's a very Cato, laissez-faire, knife-edged, nobody subsidizes anybody kind of market. Indeed, that was my view. Um, and that's the view theory would suggest would be true. But in fact, Mark Pauly's work suggests that there's more, um, not cross-subsidization, but guaranteed renewability in individual healthcare insurance markets than one would predict. And indeed, uh, for those of us who like more markets rather than more government, I think that's a, a very good sign. This is pretty complicated, so let me try to walk you through what I mean by guaranteed renewable coverage and how it differs from what we thought. And for that, we need to look at the first chart of the, of the handout. <clears throat> this chart, this set of figures, is from a Mark Pauly NBER paper, which has subsequently been published in a journal, but it's very expensive and inaccessible, so I'm giving you the NBER free version uh, right here. Um, Mike Cannon can give any of you in the room, the actual journal site where this came out, uh, if you want it. What, what many people want, well, let's put it this way. What I call the Massachusetts plan, right? The sort of uh, governor, what's his name, Romney's sort of solution to health care is, in effect, a mandated half and half between the high risk rated premium and the low risk rated premium. That is the, the sort of view of the laissez-faire ugly world is that if you're healthy, 
you're, you're trucking along here on the bottommost curve, but the minute you get sick, you're way up here in the top cost curve, and that insurers would distinguish between the two and your toast if you're in that high cost curve, because that amount of money exceeds many people's annual uh, salary. The, the Mark Pauly, well, what Pauly did is, is do this fourth line, which is the break-even GR premium, guaranteed renewability. These data and these charts are based on actual health care costs. The low-cost numbers are for people, everyone in the U.S., who doesn't have one of 12 chronic conditions. The high-cost numbers are for everyone who falls into that condition in that year. But what Polly found out is, is looking at the data, and it's part good news, part bad news, depends on how it ends up, most high-cost conditions do not persist. The reason is, if you go beyond four or five years, you die. Okay, so the notion of you're stuck with high health care costs forever isn't really true. It's not true for a bad reason, but it's not true. So Polly could calculate the guaranteed renewable premium by taking the data so for if at age 25 you come up with high blood pressure and you're in that chronic condition, you have initially high costs, but in fact either they go away after year five or six and go back down to a reasonable normal level, or you're dead. So the guaranteed renewable premiums that he calculates are much lower than people thought. So it's not that you're in the high cost level of spending for that long, which is what I used to think before I read the Pauli numbers. In fact, you're only there for the median time that you have a high cost condition is about four years. And either it's up or out, as they say, in the tenure process. So, and I'll read carefully here. To be market friendly, the guaranteed renewable premium has to meet the following test. In each year, it has to be equal to the low-cost premium, what it would be, plus the expected value, the probability times the cost, of you being a high-cost person, turning into a high-cost person that year for the rest of your life. That path of cost, but that path of cost won't be that high for that long because you either die or you drop back to not low cost, but something below high cost. He calculates those numbers for every year, for every age. So for year 27, if you become high cost, he then follows the healthcare costs of those people for the rest of their lives, and then understands what that number is, and then that becomes part of the guaranteed renewable premium. Similarly, it goes all the way up to everybody up to age 64. And all these data are for people below 65. So in words, I think I've got it here. Low-risk people don't drop out. That is, there's no adverse selection problem. Low-risk people don't drop out for lower rates as long as their premium equal the low-risk premium for that age cohort plus the expected value of all future costs if they become high cost in the next year. And that's a quote from the Poly paper, page 12. If you don't get it now, I'd urge you to go read the paper. This is a this is really important paper, and I think it, it at least I'm going to argue today that it's a way out of the mess in the terms of the left and the right always arguing with each other over stuff because it 
that argument creates a needless zero-sum conflict which doesn't exist. In fact, what Polly shows is that individual health insurers now, even in states that aren't, don't have mandated uh, average pricing, mandated community rating, even in those states, guaranteed renewable policies exist that mirror these predicted guaranteed renewable premiums that he calculated from the data. Okay? So in some sense, the market has provided an option to people who are risk averse across their lifetimes. So Polly says you have two choices. You can do spot market one year healthcare coverage that's age related, and then if you're unlucky, you're gonna pay a lot. Or you can start guaranteed renewable coverage at any year, which would equal the low cost coverage for that year plus the probability of becoming high cost for your remaining years through age 65. It's your choice. And there's a break-even year where you can sort of realize that, um, the low co the, that the guaranteed renewable makes sense. But for more risk-averse people, in effect, you're front-paying in your 20s stuff that you'll later spend down the road. And I think it's a, a marvelous set of research that he's done here. Okay. Okay, I think that's end of outline heading one, and now on to two. What should health insurance contracts cover? The conventional answer is something called things that are medically necessary. It's a marvelous scholar at the University of Tennessee Medical School. She's a philosopher, but she's a PhD in philosophy, but she teaches ethics to uh, medical students at US, uh, University of Tennessee. And she has a big, long scholarly record in an interesting Oxford Press book. Her name is Javi Morhan. And she argues that medical necessity is the, are the two most vacuous words ever put together in the English language. Because it, it, these words act as if that medical decisions are scientific rather than cost-benefit decisions. Science can tell you we can operate on you in this way and you have probability, probability blah of surviving, probability blah of being in a wheelchair, probability something else of, of recovering. Now whether that's a good deal or not depends on your views, how much money you have, how much other people's money you have access to, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But instead doctors, when they use the term medical necessity, here's what they really mean. We think that the benefits of doing this are above zero. That's all. We're, not, we're taught not to think about cost. In fact, we're taught that it's unethical to think about cost. And our political system and culture reinforces in that belief. But that's all we're really saying. But the notion that something is scientifically mandated is just an odd way to use science. So she argues that medical necessity in health insurance contracts is simply turning over decisions to guys and women in white coats, even though they're not economists, and it's not their money. Page four. <clears throat> how would we, how could we decide to what health insurance contracts should cover? Javi Morheim's answer is through contract. Um, because she's an academic and not a a boots-on-the-ground policy analyst. She didn't have to fill in the details, and she did not. So I pre-warn you, for those of you on the Hill, and most of you probably are, that's why you're here, 
Um, don't go out and buy her book. You will be disappointed, and you'll yell at me and saying, Van Dorn see, it said it was good, but in fact it has no answers. It doesn't. It doesn't say how to write contracts. It doesn't say what ought to be in contracts. It doesn't say I could specify that you get WhizBank procedure X, Y, and Z, but technological changed. What if it invents new things? How do we account for that? She doesn't answer that question. So in theory, it sounds like we could write contracts in practice. She nor I actually know um, how to fill in the details. Two, what we really did is we corporations got sick of paying the bills and they switched folks into HMOs. And that led to the backlash in the 90s because HMOs really constrained spending. If you look at the aggregate data, it really was flat there for some time. And we know why. HMOs said no. People didn't like that. Tight labor markets occurred in the late 90s. Corporations gave up. In the 2000s, we've gone back to throwing money at everything because people get happier when you do that. And the answer is we're back where we were before we had HMOs. Mark McClellan thinks he has an answer, and that's clinical trials. But again, notice it's the old science can solve everything problem. It somehow suggests we never have to make choices between costs and benefits and whose money it is. We always have to make those choices. It's just nobody likes to talk about it. It is an improvement, however, at least clinical trials for Medicare approval might eliminate things that have less than positive benefits, i.e., they harm people. Okay? There are such things. Uh, back surgery is one of them, one of my favorites, and I'll talk about it. So Mark McClellan now is when some new whiz-bang technique comes along and they want Medicare approval and then private insurers follow from that, McClellan is saying, all right, we'll give you some preliminary approval, but you've got to submit to a clinical trial. Some on the right are sort of apoplectic, the government's in the way and blah, blah, blah. Well, I mean, we're paying a lot anyway. You might as well try to you know, do a better job of it. And I happen to like clinical trials. I think they're, they're intriguing. They don't answer every question, but they do answer a lot of questions. So I'm, I'm optimistic that this may rein in some of the things. One of my favorites that occurred before this happened was um, Medicare-approved intestinal transplant surgery. It's $300,000 a pop. Um, no evidence that it really does anything, and it's $300,000 a pop. I think we need to try to stop that kind of mischief, and the only way to do that is through clinical trials. Part B, bottom page four. For those of you who remember your econ class, I'm sure it's warm, warm memories of that econ class, that you'll remember that the, the argument that information has quasi-public good characteristics, and thus we need a tax or some government role in providing that kind of information. Healthcare would seem to be ripe for that in terms of quality, and Mark McClellan in his scholarly work has been a big, big player in that, in that movement. And he's um, done some research on the report card system that New York State had for cardiac surgery. Again, a, a sort of consumer reports naive view of markets would suggest that report cards can only have benefits. They can't possibly have costs. Well, guess what? Markets are tricky little beasts, and I'm going to tell you the tale that Mark McClellan tells about the New York State cardiac registry. New York State, well, we know it's a fact. Surgery is better when you practice a lot. So surgeons who perform a lot of procedures a year have lower error rates than surgeons who don't. So heart 
related surgery in community hospitals is usually a disaster. You want to go to a place that does 300 bypasses a year, not one that does 20, because the old anesthesiologist in the recovery room people are a little rusty and, and things go wrong. So based on that, New York State said, let's rate the fatality rates of various cardiac centers in New York State and we'll risk adjust. Right? This is what the doctors say, you need to risk adjust, I agree. In other words, the sicker that someone is, is when they go in, you want to account for that in a regression to come up with someone's rating. New York State did this. It sounds like it's an ideal market failure correction. The good news is the sicker patients after this program did go to the better hospitals. But how did the bad doctors respond? Well, they have mortgages to pay and kids' tuition to pay and whatnot. They needed to maintain their income. So they started operating on healthier people. Think about it, and then you go, of course. How do you get your rating up? Don't operate on sick people. So if we, again, this is a form of adverse selection of the most interesting sort. <clears throat> so instead of cost, let's make it sickness. And we've got a frequency distribution. And this is... Um, really healthy, and this is really sick. <clears throat> what the surgeons did is they stopped operating on any of the really sick people because you don't want to get, it's like, does any professor want a bad student in his or her class? The answer is, of course not, particularly not if I'm going to be rated on how they do, right? So the no child left behind stuff means Let's figure out who all the bad students are and put them somewhere, just not in my school. So the really sick drop out. The rest of the people go to better medical centers and they do better. But then this set of people that never used to be operated on at all, the weaker surgeons start to operate on those people. So the net effect is the ratings go up. The bad news is there's probably... These people don't get the care that they used to get, and these people do get care that they don't really need. Okay? So a, a sort of cautionary note about implementing um, any report card system, because you have to account for the endogenous response of the participants to the incentives that you've created in the report card. The No Child Left Behind Act is a complicated report card system, and indeed, I, as best I can tell, no one thought about the endogenous response of anybody to this kind of incentive system. Let's cruise here through two pages in about three minutes. Equity. Not a word we talk about at Cato very much, but we do silently in a closed secret room like the NSA. <laughs> Healthcare. Well, for those who take a public finance course, you'll learn about a term called merit good. Merit Good was coined by a Harvard Public Finance text in the late 50s. It refers to a commodity that the culture is uncomfortable in its allocation because of limited by income. Healthcare and education are things that uh, many people are uncomfortable allocating on the basis of a market income distribution. And in fact, we want to subsidize the consumption of that for those who don't have much money, healthcare being one of them. I give you some numbers. 
For a low-wage worker, the cost of health care at the national average is frightening. It consumes basically, if for a family, it, it would consume all their income. And that is difficult for someone to do. Low-cost limited benefit contracts are available, but no one seems to buy them. It's, um, those of you, some of you in the room may know more than I do about you know, the details of how hard they've been marketed and whether or not uh, the companies have really tried hard. But the market has provided things that are low cost, but because they have limited benefits, um, people don't seem to purchase them. Now, are the uninsured a problem? Well, look at the next uh, chart on the handout charts. <clears throat> this is a uh, chart from a Gruber paper. Gruber um, is a liberal healthcare economist who worked in the Clinton administration, so I've I've stacked these numbers to be against a Cato view. Um, but notice the second column, the percentage of uninsured in the category. Notice that if, I mean, at least before I saw these data, and I would think most of you probably have the same notion, that if I drew If we had income on the x-axis and we had uninsured on the y-axis, I think most of us would think that there'd be some sort of you know, very steep negative slope like that. But look at that second column. The percent of the uninsured in the income category, it sort of kind of just trucks along. It's kind of flat. And at the margin, and I give you these in the notes, the, at the margin, the, uh, in 2003, over half of the new uninsured had family incomes above 50000 a year. So at the margin, the uninsured are growing mostly in, in a, at least an income category that I think most of us would think is somebody that we shouldn't worry about equity-wise. So at least I want to give pause on the notion that it's an obvious equity problem, uh, that, un that being uninsured has an obvious equity component. Bottom page five. I've already gone through this a bit with the poly arguments. In my view, Polly's work changes the debate fundamentally. The debate now, as best I can tell, is a Massachusetts plan in which everyone is made to join some community rating kind of system. And in effect, you're taxing young people, right? That's quite clear what Massachusetts is doing, is dragging in lots of people that don't, in the conventional sense, find the deals they find in markets to be good enough. I think Polly, I mean, I don't know the status of guaranteed renewability plans in Massachusetts. I don't know how well they've been marketed. I don't know much about that. However, at least in my view, if markets provide a guaranteed renewable plan and people don't take it up. And, and, we can pre-commit not to pay their bills when they come into the system. Then we don't need to make people do anything. At most, we might want to make people pay for the uninsured costs they create when they enter the system. But we do that already. It's called, we bill them and then, because we have a bankruptcy option in the U.S., in effect, we'd have to figure out 
if we want bankruptcy to exist, then we shouldn't single out healthcare as being the one thing you can't go bankrupt from because that we don't want to treat markets differently, I think. So either we have a bankruptcy system and we have to let it do what it does, and that would imply prepayment for uninsured people in hospitals and no money, no card, no treatment. And if we're not prepared to do that, then let's be quiet and stop whining and then pay the bills through taxes. Or guaranteed renewability works. I mean, I think people have the option to sign up for these things in their 20s. As best I can tell, they're very good deals. And I'm not sure why inside the Beltway we spend so much time talking about this thing because Polly's already discovered it. Um, so I urge you all to think about what he's figured out. Now, why is insuring people, why is pooling risk such a big deal? Next handout. Another empirical impression I want to leave you with today is how concentrated high health care costs are. The sickest 1% of people, that is something, somewhere in the order of 3 million people, we have 300 million or so population, and so the sickest 1%, 3 million people a year, account for somewhere around 30% of the nation's aggregate health care costs. And that's a per capita cost per patient per year of $56,500. They are sick, and they're spending a lot of money. Now, the bottom 50% of the population is so healthy, the bottom 50% in health care costs incurring in each year, is so healthy that it, they only account for 3 or 4% of the nation's health care costs every year. And that, and what's interesting about this chart, it's been true forever. Even though things are now more expensive and we do a lot more, notice that basically health care cost containment in the aggregate, in the aggregate, is all about what we do with the very sickest people. And it's always been that. So we have to have a, so probably a moral discussion of what do we do with those folks? Who gets to decide? Who spends the money? What if people pre-committed to not have that done? Could their estate get some of the money? In other words, I'm an economist. I like bargains. If you come to me and say, you could live on a lot more money now in return for pre-committing to cut yourself off from extensive care when you're older. Mm, I'd like that kind of contract. Now, it'd be interesting to see if courts would enforce it. It'd be interesting to see how many moral outrage stories there would be in the New York Times because I signed such a contract. But um, it certainly ought to be in the realm of a possibility of discussion that part of the reason we worry about pooling so much is because healthcare costs are so concentrated. And they're so concentrated because we do so much for the very sickest people. And now to really, I'll end with the curveball that I want to end with, which is the last page of the outline. In my view, for those of you inside the Beltway who are not familiar with the academic discussion today, these days, the most interesting part of healthcare economics now, in my view, is something called evidence-based medicine. It started at Dartmouth. It's primarily the work of John Wenberg and his colleagues. What they've done is muck around in the data. I love people who muck around in the data. They find out things that turn out to be true. What he has spent his scholarly life on is examining the cross-sectional variation, that is fancy term for 
across space. The cross-sectional variation in medical activity by geography. His first scholarly article was trying to explain the variation in abortion rates between two counties in Maine. One county had a 60% abortion rate and the county next to it had something much less than that. And he, was it medical practice? Was it this? Or da, 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 da. And he found out it was religion. Right? That one county was very, very Catholic and one county was not. He's gone on now to talk about, well, why is there so much back surgery in the West Coast and so little on the East Coast? Turns out it's the way people are trained in various medical schools. Is there any scientific evidence that back surgery really works? He finds no. But you are what you're taught. And that matters in medicine much more than most lay people realize. And they don't realize how little scientific evidence there is for many of the things we do in medicine. I'll give you some data. Uh, the expenditures per Medicare enrollee in Miami per year, 78.47. In Minneapolis, 36.63. What do you get for all that extra money in Miami, as far as they can tell in the data? Answer, nothing. Nothing. No difference in mortality rates at all. In Knoxville, they spent 20720 per year per heart attack patient and had risk-adjusted one-year survival of 70 per 100. New York City, double that, lower expected survival rate. What'd you get for all the extra money? Nothing. And I could go on and on and on. I've got so many of these that they make you sick. Counter that is time series evidence. If you go and do regressions from 1960 or 1970 to the present and take Medicare spending and then have life expectancy as the left-hand side variable and control for as many things as you can find, on the right-hand side of the equation, you get something. You get <clears throat> notions that spe extra spending in Medicare has actually been cost-effective. And so these two parts of academia are now an intense war with each other, and it's fun to watch because the Wenberg folks have really got McClellan's ear, and a lot of McClellan's initiatives on the Medicare side are driven by the Dartmouth evidence. And the time series folks, often on retainer by medical people, um, I won't name names, but one of them in particular gets a lot of money from an, another entity I won't name. They crank out time series evidence that says we could spend more money till the cows come home and life expectancy will keep rising. <clears throat> so some of the most interesting academic work now is trying to resolve this discrepancy. As best I can tell, the early Medicare spending seems to have mattered, but after the mid-90s, it's now we're not getting anything for the extra increase in spending. The last 10 years are what they call flat of the curve medicine. And I give you some <clears throat> anecdotal evidence, some, some good reads in the New Yorker and the New York Times. Jerome Grotman is a professor of oncology at Harvard, writes the New Yorker. He does very good work in the New Yorker. And uh, Jane Brody and Gina Collada do excellent work, I think, on healthcare in the New York Times. So for those of you who need to keep up on this and don't read the journals, read what they do. Um, they're very good followers of this. And I think I'll end there. Thank you.